This is the Bama Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we take a look at even more Midrash that surrounds the character of Noah. Some commentary describes Noah as the man in the fur coat. What is this all about? Indeed. Hey, before we even get started, uh, this this is relevant. I wanted to read, um, so I just finished recently this uh, book by Rabbi David Foreman, Genesis, A Parsha Companion. We'll link it in the show notes here. This is in his introduction. I wanted to, I'm going to read just a little bit here, uh, just a page or two or three, perhaps four. But um, I want to read just his thoughts here. We always talk about what it's like for a rabbi to get trained in the Midrash. And so here we are doing episodes on Midrash and what it means to be a rabbi. And A, I, I thought it was great to read his perspective on some of this, but B, it was just, it just resonated with why I love of all the rabbis I've listened to, there's something really special and unique about Rabbi Foreman and why it resonates so much for me. Um, and he's not a follower of Jesus, but it resonates for me because of how I interact with the the Bible from from my view, I'm, I'm going to say as a Christian. Um, and I just loved it. So I just wanted to share. I, th- I think it's relevant to our episode. It's relevant to the Midrash anyway. I don't know if it's relevant to our episode, but... Um, the way I was taught, this is this is Rabbi Foreman in his introduction, page two. The way I was taught back then uh, went kind of like this. You start, say, with a verse. God tells Abraham to go and leave his birthplace for a land that God will show him. It's a very nice verse. It seems uh, intuitively understandable, but then you learn that it's not so simple. Rashi has one view of the verse. Uh, Sforno has another view, and Rambam takes the whole thing to an entirely different way. Moreover, Rashi's view of the verse isn't really too clear. Mizrahi thinks Rashi means one thing, and Sifter Chachamim thinks Rashi means something else. And did we forget about Hirsch? Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch has his own unique way of interpreting all these words. Okay, got all that? Great. Let's go on to the next verse. And we'll do it all over again. At the end of the week, we'll have a quiz, and at the end of the month, a test. It felt like you had to be really smart, really good at remembering lots of details just to keep pace. Now, don't get me wrong. Learning uh, the, the Rishonim is important. These sainted commentators were brilliant interpreters of the text, and they are a crucial part of our tradition. But somehow, I was getting lost in the simplest of questions— Like, what does the story as a whole mean? I'm reading the story of Yehuda and Tamar in Genesis 38, and I can tell you why there might be three extra words in the third verse, according to Or Chaim, but somehow I'm hard-pressed to tell you anything about what the story is trying to teach me, what the story is doing there, interpreting the Joseph saga so blatantly, interrupting, excuse me, interrupting the Joseph saga so blatantly. I was seeing a lot of trees, but somehow the forest was passing me by. Eventually, in an effort to regain my footing, I tried a bit of ex- I tried a bit of an experiment. I tried getting back to basics, as it were. These commentators of generations past, Rashi, Rambam, Sforno, Malbim, Hirsch, and others, all had the same starting point. It seemed to me they read the text of Torah carefully, made their best attempt to understand what, it was, go- what was going on. Whatever else these greats were doing, they certainly started with first, uh, with that first basic step. Nowadays, we call this basic reading comprehension. 
Moreover, not only did they do that themselves, they must have expected their readers to do it too. You wouldn't read a commentary on a text before reading the text itself, would you? So if that's the case, I found myself thinking, maybe I should just start there. Let me clear my mind of everything else I knew, go back to the basic text of the Torah, take a deep breath, and try to read it carefully. In practice, wouldn't you know it, I found that this wasn't so easy. Having read the stories of Torah over and over again, it's not, this simple, it's not the simplest thing in the world to clear your mind, forget everything you know about them, and read them afresh, paying close attention to the words without leaping to conclusions. But gradually I got better at it. I found that there was a deceptively simple set of tools, little games almost, that were helpful in the process. You could look at a set of laws and play which of these things is not like the other. You could read a story and stop halfway through trying to guess the ending playing what happens next, and then go back and notice how very different the actual ending is from the ending you would have predicted. You could take a biblical story, pay close attention to the words, and play where have we heard these words before, identifying in this story an uncanny uh, echo of an earlier one or a foreshadowing of a later one. All these games are things little kids learn to do on Sesame Street. I began to find that everything you needed to know to start learning Torah you learned in kindergarten. Over time, I began to discover something that caught me by surprise. This basic reading comprehension was yielding results that weren't so basic. It was helping to open up the deeper meaning of the stories for me to entirely unexpected ways. It was as if just under the surface of the Torah's most familiar stories lay whole other layers of meaning just waiting to be discovered. And these basic reading techniques were the spades, chisels, and brushes that helped me carefully lay bare some of these layers. And as I began to poke around still further, I began to realize I wasn't the first to see any of this. The ancient rabbis of the Midrash, in their own, un, un, own in, uh-oh, Brent, I found a word I can't say, inimitable, inimitable? Inimitable. Inimitable way, thank you, had pointed to many of these deeper themes thousands of years ago. It was as if, concentrating on these kindergarten basics, I was rediscovering elements of an ancient but powerful methodology for approaching our most sacred texts. Eventually, I began to notice something else. All this was changing me. I love this paragraph. All this was changing me. It wasn't just that I was starting to understand the text better or even learn its lessons better. I was something beyond that. I found myself kindling a romance with the Torah's text. I found myself falling in love with this book. It's a strange sensation to fall in love with a book, but that's what was happening. There was something very special about this text. Of course, on some level, it sounds silly to say that. As an observant Jew, I always held the Torah to be sacred, to be a divine work, but it's one thing to believe that a sacred text is unique and special and another to see it with your own eyes. I found I didn't need to be preached at to believe that there was something deeply sacred in this work. If I just sat down and read it, the text would invariably leave me with something unexpectedly profound, and along the way, with a wink and a nod, I would find a way to remind me that this was no ordinary book. Its layers of meaning would dazzle me. I had an interesting experience along these lines with a number of years ago, uh, back when I was teaching a non-credit class on the book of Genesis at John Hopkins University. I had been modeling the basic technique I described above, clear your mind, start fresh, ask better questions, sift the text for clues, observe the language carefully, and let the large picture the text is painting slowly reveal itself. As I was about to begin the 16th and last class, someone in the back of the room, Jerry, a professor at John Hopkins School of Medicine, raised his hand and asked, could you say a few words about the authorship of the Bible? Truth be told, the question of authorship was something I had been assiduously avoiding in that class. It just didn't seem appropriate to bring up. 
Here I was, an observant Jew, teaching under the aegis of John Hopkins, a secular university. While I had my own religious convictions about the Bible being a divine work, this wasn't something I was keen to share with students there. They weren't coming to be preached to. They were coming to learn. So my approach was to take the question of authorship pretty much off the table. One way or another, I had told them, the Bible is the greatest bestseller of the history of the world. There's got to be reason for that. Let's study the text and see what we make of it. But now Jerry was threatening to blow my cover. I hesitated a bit in answering him. To buy a little time, I asked him to clarify. He responded, well, I had always learned that the Bible was put together by a scattershot collection of authors. There was an E author and a J author. Isaiah found Deuteronomy, and there was maybe a priestly author too. And then all of this was kind of pieced together by some redactors, he said. But I'm having a hard time seeing how that could possibly be so. I mean, it's all so interconnected. The word patterns and structural features of Genesis are woven into this, in, wo, woven into those in the book of Numbers, which are woven into Exodus. It all seems so amazingly unified. I don't see how more than one author could have possibly written this. I turned around and joked to the class that I didn't even pay Jerry to say that, and we all moved on. But Jerry's comment got, uh, taught me something. It wasn't just me who noticed what was special about this book. The people in that classroom, my fellow explorers on this journey, through the biblical text, saw it too. Despite my best attempt to remain more, remain mute about what I saw in the sacred quality of the Bible, what was special and uncanny about this book was shining through. There, in a nondescript room... A, in Schaefer Hall, the text had me had begun to work its magic on a dis- disparate group of students from backgrounds as diverse as you could possibly imagine. They were beginning to fall in love with the book, too. That sense of romance is what I want to try and share with you here in this book. More than anything else you get out of, of reading this Parsha Companion, above and beyond my particular insight you may perceive or... Any methodological tool you might glean, I hope you get this, a sense of wonder and adoration for the shared treasure we have in our possession, the Torah. The thing with adoration, though, is that it's uh, ephemeral, and it's something that's not easily communicated directly. After all, how interested are you in listening to someone swooning over wonderful qualities of their beloved girlfriend or boyfriend, wife or husband? A person in love can't stop talking about their beloved. They'll happily chew your ear off for what seems like hours, but most listeners, well, after a while, they'll just roll their eyes, give it any chance to change the topic, and they'll take it. I don't want to make that mistake with you. I don't want you to preach to you. I don't want, I don't want to preach to you, lecturing you on how special the Bible is. I just want to learn with you. I want to embark on a shared adventure with you. Come with me, and let's give it a whirl. I... Liked that. I don't know. Was that worth reading, Brent? Pretty good? Yeah, definitely. Love it. It was good. A little bit of time. Sorry for the time. But time well spent, nonetheless. I thought that was great. And that's that's what I've been learning about the Midrash. Not from his perspective, learning it as a rabbi and rabbinical training, but taking everything that I learned as, you know, raised in a fundamentalist Christian upbringing, deconstructing it learning a hermeneutic that that maintains this Jewish perspective, it it articulated what I've been learning as well. So, all right, Brent, you said something about Noah wearing a fur coat. So I'm interested in learning a little bit about this in the spirit of what we just heard from Foreman. So let's read some passages, shall we? We're going to talk about three characters. We're going to talk about Noah. We're going to talk about Lot. We sometimes say Lot. So we're going to talk about Noah, we're going to talk about Lot, and we're going to talk about Avram. 
three characters, Noah, Lot, and Abram. And uh, we're going to try to see what the Midrash wants to point out to us from their story. So uh, give me Genesis 6. Tell me about Noah, Brent. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening one cubit high all around. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you, two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and stored away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. All right, that's your that's your Noah story for examination. That is Exhibit A, labeled Noah, for our conversation today. All right? That's the portion we're going to look at. Uh, let's meet Lot. I'm just going to jump over to Genesis 13. Tell me, give me, give me six verses about Lot here, Brent. So Avram said to Lot, let's not have any quarreling between you and me, or between your herders and mine, for we are close relatives. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan toward Zoar was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. The two men parted company. Avram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. All right, so now we meet uh, Lot, and I mean, we didn't meet Lot here exactly, but this is one of the first stories where we see this interaction. They have a quarrel, like they're growing, like Avram's household is growing, servants, and they've just come back from Egypt, and now they have all this wealth, flocks, and manservants, and maidservants, and all everything the Bible tells us about. And so now they have a, they're, they're having a hard time fitting in the land together. So Avram says... Well, you know, and you can go back and, and listen to our episodes in this in session one, but Avram essentially, he doesn't know how how this is going to work out in God's sight, but he knows that he's not supposed to sit here and quarrel with Lot every day. So he lets Lot choose, and Lot chooses. He looks up, and he chooses what is good and pleasing to the eye, and he heads off towards the cities of the plain, and we're told that he pitches his tents outside of Sodom. So that's where he's living uh, we're going to skip a little bit ahead to Genesis 14 and hear a little bit more about Lot and his story. Go ahead, Brent. I would like to know, though, when he looked out and saw the plain of the Jordan towards Zoar and that it was well watered, 
How did he know that it was like the garden of the Lord or even like the land of Egypt? Yeah. Like how did he specifically know that? Like they were down in Egypt. So he knows about Egypt, but the reference to the garden of the Lord is definitely like from an author's perspective, intentional, like that whole, he looks up and sees is the same exact phrase used for Eve. When she looks up to the tree of knowledge, good and evil, she looked up and saw that it was pleasing to the eye, good for food and desirable for gaining wisdom. Same phrase there. So there's definitely a callback to the garden by the author, no doubt. Um, but how would it, like, within the story, how would he know it was like the garden? I, I don't know. That's a great question. Is the text even saying that he realized that? Maybe he just saw that it was well watered, and then the author is saying, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. Yeah. That's good. I like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The NIV, so right after that, it says, this was before the Lord uh, destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And that little portion at the end of the verse is in parentheses, but maybe maybe the parentheses should start like the garden of the Lord. I don't know. Oh, interesting. Yeah, good take. Something, All right. something I was thinking about as I was reading through it. Wonderful. Uh, okay, pick, picking up Genesis 14. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food. Then they went away. They also carried off Avram's nephew Lot and his possessions, since he was living in Sodom. A man who had escaped came and reported this to Avram the Hebrew. Now Avram was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, a brother of Eshkol and Ananer, all of whom were allied with Avram. When Avram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Avram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, uh, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions, together with the women and the other people. After Avram returned from defeating Kedorlaomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Avram, saying, Blessed be Avram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Avram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Avram, Give me the people and, the, and keep the goods for yourself. But Avram said to the king of Sodom, With raised hand I have sworn an oath to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Avram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me, to Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them have their share. All right, so so here we we see that whole, in which that story raises all kinds of questions that I don't want to deal with here. But nevertheless, oh, man, in, with, <laughs> I, with, I, you may have heard some hesitation in my voice a few times as I was reading because I was like, "Whoa, wait a second. <laughs> as as my yeah. voice is passing it by, my mind is like, "Wait, wait, wait, hold on." <laughs> yeah. Okay, so we're going to focus on Lot uh, for the purpose of this conversation. So Lot's living in Sodom. Uh, then the kings go to war. Lot gets taken. Avram hears he gets taken, and he goes to rescue him. He somehow miraculously defeats these kings. And the king of Sodom comes out after this whole thing, after the victory, after the sacrifice and worship with Melchizedek. Uh, the king of Sodom comes out and says to Avram, hey, listen, you can keep all the wealth, you can keep all the money, you can keep all the goods, keep all the loot. I just want my people back. And Avram says, no, no, that's not how it's going to work. 
uh, you're going to get everything back. You're going to get the goods and the people. And he sends low, uh, he gives them all the goods, all the loot back, except for the shares or everybody else. But then, but then also gives him loat back. And whenever I teach that, people are like, oh, no, 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 no. He kept loat. Like he just gave the stuff back. He didn't. But where do we find loat next? Uh, read me the first verse of Genesis 19. Brent, this is the next time we run into loat. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. All right. So at the end of, well, not the end, but chapters later, Lot's where, Brent? He's in Sodom. He's in Sodom. Not only that, he's even sitting in the... In the gateway. Like, he's the he's the welcome party. Yeah. He's representing the entire town to any passerby. Exactly. He is... The city gates are where the city officials, like the important people of the city. So he used to pitch his tents, but now maybe as a... Maybe as a thank you for Avram giving everything back to Sodom. I mean, who knows the backstory? All we do know is that he's now sitting at the city gate. He's not an outsider. He's an insider with the people of Sodom. And we know from most places in the text that Sodom has given themselves to some pretty uh, inhospitable ways. They're pretty greedy. They don't take care of the poor and the needy, as Ezekiel tells us. Uh and, but we're told that Lot still has that hospitality. But nevertheless, he is definitely living in Sodom. That is where his residence is. And that, and he has like a deeply rooted residence. And we're even going to know he has a house. They come knocking on the door of his house later on in the story. So he's gone from tents to homes in Sodom. Did, um, did, did you happen to run across any Midrash that connects A and B as far as Lot between I, those two stories? I bet there's some fantastic stuff, but I have not. I didn't go looking either, though. But I, I bet there's some great backstory. It seems it seems like a, uh, a situation ripe for some midrash to fill in the gap. Sure, sure it does. All right, let's meet one last character. We don't meet him here, but I, there's, let's look at one last story, and then we'll get into our conclusions here. Excuse me. We'll get into our conclusions here. But uh, Brent, give me uh, Genesis 18. So this is, um, this is right after... Uh, well, yeah, their names are changed at this point. So this is right after Avraham and Sarah uh, have been visited by, by the, the guys in the game on the bread. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Avraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Avraham what I'm about to do? Avraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Avraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, and their sin is so grievous, that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Avraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Avraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, If I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Avraham spoke up again. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, but if the number of the righteous is five less than 50, will you destroy the whole city for lack of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him. 
What if only 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Avraham said, now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? He said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Avraham, he left and Avraham returned home. All right. Now, before we even get into bigger questions, Brent, what is the one question you have at the end of that? That's quite a long little discourse you had to read there. Like Noah's got some chutzpah. But what is the thing at the end of that? Do you have anything that you that you wrestle with? Uh, I just love this story so much. It is <laughs> just thinking about how Avraham could do like the amount, like not just chutzpah, but like chutzpah's chutzpah, like so much so much boldness. <laughs> and then he gets all the way to the end and he just stops at 10. Okay. Why doesn't he keep going? Exactly. Like, why not find where the bottom of this thing is, right? Like, okay, uh, sweet, 10. What about, how about five? Uh, oh, five. What about, what about three? One? Hey, let's not destroy Sodom at all. How about that? Like, how far could he have pushed this? And yet he stops. Like, why does he stop? Okay. Rabbis say he stops at 10. Because there's 10 people in Lot's household, and Avraham, Avraham knows, like, well, at least Lot's going to be righteous. I know that about him and his family. So I'm going to stop at 10 because that's all I need. Now, a lot of people go back to the story and they're like, oh, there's not 10. There's actually only eight. And you can actually listen to Foreman teach on this at some point. I, I don't know if you can find it at Aleph Beta, which we'll throw in the show notes. Um, but... Uh, there was an old lecture where he went through and he numbered all the people. And you have to see the daughters-in-law and sons-of-law, not they all have to be unique. They all have to be referencing unique marriages. But the fact that they're listed in the Hebrew in such a way that implies they're not the same couples. So they're unique couples. But when you do all that, you actually end up counting 10 people, 10 in all. Um, uh, which means that later in the story, when you have the daughters sleeping with Lot, their father... Uh, just later in that next chapter, that ends up telling you that those, uh, obviously those husbands ne- didn't come with. There's all kinds of things in the Hebrew insinuating they had husbands. It's wonderful. You should, if if you can find anything from Foreman, I recommend finding it and reading it or, or listening to it, excuse me. But anyway, so that's why, according to the Midrash, Avraham stops as he knows, and that actually plays into this larger Midrashic conversation I want to have with you today, which is about Noah and the fur coat. Now, when you compare, let's now juxtapose, um, Brent, let's juxtapose Noah's story and Avraham's story. Is there anything that is striking after hearing Avraham's story about the Noah story for you? Uh, well, why didn't uh, Noah make the argument? Exactly. Why is it that God comes to Noah and the story goes... Hey, I'm going to destroy the whole world. Here's what I need you to do. And Noah goes, "Sweet, okay, you got <laughs> the, it." Like the the last verse was literally, "And Noah did everything the Lord commanded him." Noah did everything just as God commanded him. <laughs> and Avraham do, does like the exact opposite. And Avraham argued with God for a long time. <laughs> the what is like? So they called him the man in the fur coat. And I I don't know if that's an ancient midrash, Brent. We need to say that up front. That could be a very modern midrash, but I love that could be a, like a more medieval midrash or even a modern day midrash, to be honest. 
but I love what it's trying to teach us. Noah, the man in the fur coat, the other nickname for him in modern times is the insulator. He's the man in the fur coat. Noah is the insulator. He just is all insulated and worried about himself. Am I safe? Am I warm? Do I have an ark? Am I going to survive? That's Noah. Lot, on the other hand, in the same modern rabbinical teaching, is often called the assimilator. Lot has assimilated into, into the, in the culture of the cities of the plain. Lot sits at the city gate of Sodom. Lot, and what happens when you're the assimilator, like if you're the insulator like Noah, like you're going to save yourself, the problem is, is you don't actually end up saving the world. You just save yourself. If you're the assimilator, you can't even save yourself. I mean, you can't, like Lot's saved, but he loses members of his family because when you assimilate, you lose the power of your witness. Like you lose the power of your testimony. You lose the umph in what you actually, the missional umph in what you have to say to the world around you. So much so that there's not even 10 people when the angels come. He hasn't even convinced his sons-in-law. He hasn't even convinced his daughters-in-law. He hasn't even convinced his... uh, There's all kinds of different Midrash about his wife, as there always is when it comes to the women of the Midrash. But some are very hard. Some are very positive on on who she was. Lot has lost his ability to convince even his family, let alone the people around him. And yet Avram, Avraham has been called to do what to all nations, Brent? To bless all nations. Avraham, he has been called to have an impact. Avraham is going to change the course of the entire narrative because Avraham knows how to have an impact with the people around him. He's going to bless the people around him. It's going to make a difference. And through his descendants, it's going to make a difference in the world around him. And the rabbis say, why? Because Avraham, he's not an insulator. Avraham's not an assimilator. Avraham is an, is an engager. Avraham's going to wrestle with God. Avraham's going to argue with God. Avraham's going to be almost like this priestly character. He's going to stand in the gap and try to fight for a better way. God shows up to Noah and says, I'm going to destroy the whole world. And Noah says, sweet, when do I need to have the ark done? God shows up to Lot, only he doesn't even show up to Lot because Lot's too assimilated to even realize the end of the world is coming. God shows up to Avraham and says, I'm going to destroy the whole world. And Avraham says, you can't do that. This is the nature of the people of God. This is who, and so the reflection for us for today's episode, as we listen to this Midrash, is to think back to that story and to wrestle with which one of those things, who am I? Am I the engager? And if not, which direction do I like to lean? Am I the assimilator or am I the insulator? No doubt for me, Brent Billings, I am a Noah character. Like, God tells me how to, and 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 I think there are so many well, I'm sure Christians fall into both camps, but I know so many self-righteous Jesus followers who fall into Noah's camp, where if God showed up tomorrow and said to us, I'm, I'm here, my second coming has arrived, the judgment is here, and I'm here to pay back all the sinners, I think there are so many Jesus followers that would say, well, it's about dang time. <laughs> and I wonder, <laughs> I wonder... If there's not a, wait a minute, would God's people be like Avraham? 
would they say, no, God, no, you can't do that. I've learned too much about you through the New Testament. I've seen too much of you in the person of Jesus. I've listened to too much in your inspired text to believe that you're here to just wheel and deal all this judgment. You, you can't. You can't do that. Let me, let me stand here and argue with you. I, I find that to be super, super convicting to me. And obviously we have all the, you know, the worldliness of, I've often said in session three, I feel like Christians are, have the negatives of the Pharisees. We're spiritual Pharisees and cultural Herodians. So I feel like we're the, <laughs> I feel like we're assimilators wearing full fur coats, man. Uh, we're running around Sodom in our fur coat. Um <laughs> That's, but man, I just find that midrash just continues to be instructive to me. I will often pause and just go, "Oh man, am I wearing a fur coat right now? Am I sitting in the city gate? Like, where am I right now? What am I doing? Am I engaged in the mission of God?" I don't know, Brent. What do you think? Which way do you lean? You know, I feel like probably assimilator is going to be most accurate for me. Yeah, yeah. Maybe insulator on some days. Do you have a, are you, are you, I don't even know if I know this about you, Brent. Are you an introverted or extroverted? I'm, I'm an extrovert in an introvert's clothing, apparently, because most people, I'm the kind of person who I'm, I'm a strong analyst personality type. Sure. So I like to sit back and let people do their thing, watch what's going on. I'm not necessarily contributing to the conversation a lot. Right. Uh, but I'm absolutely an extrovert. I love being around people. Uh, I, you know, when I was younger, especially I was doing something with people basically every day of the week. I never, ever felt like, you know, I just need to stay home tonight. Never felt that way. So if I came to you and said you had to spend the next few years on an arc with like six other people, seven other people, and, uh, we were going to destroy all technology and everything that exists in the world, that would not be, like, sweet for you. Well, it would be better than being on the boat alone, I guess. But <laughs> Sure. But, yeah, no, not, like, like the people who are like, yeah, I want to I wanna go to Mars and help start a colony in Mars. It's like, okay, well, it's like a two-year journey to Mars. Is it a two-year? Sure. Or eight, eight-month, nine-month journey, whatever. Um, two, every two years, the Mars lines up with Earth, so you can, you can, anyway long time basically on on a spaceship with two or three other people probably maybe right five six other people like very very noah's ark sort of numbers um yeah that would that would be really tough for me yeah sure that makes sense yeah some people want to be in the mix and if you tell me i gotta spend yeah tell me i can spend the next few years on a boat with six other people i'm gonna be like do i have to have the six other people can i just be me on a boat that'd be great Take my wife, maybe. Cruise. We'll, we'll call it a cruise. We'll call it a Noah's cruise. Call it a cruise. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I'll even take care of the animals if I don't have to deal with people. Sign me up. No, I'm, I mean, I'm definitely an insulator. I, I, I'm i an insulator. Not a, I'm not just on the, I'm not trying to make this about introversion or extroversion, but spiritually speaking, if you tell me I'm going to be safe, man, sign me up. Uh, that is me to a T. So we all have our tendencies. I find this midrash to be really instructive and helpful. And uh, I hope it is for everybody else too. So that's why we share it. What do you got, Brent? Anything else? I think that's it. Are we good for the day? I think we're good. All right. Love it. Uh, if I can find a specific thing to link to on Aleph Beta for um, the story, I will. But otherwise, we'll just link generally and you can explore all of the things 
that are there to, to learn. All the things. All all of Foreman's teaching on all this. Noah. He, I don't I don't think I've ever heard him talk about the Midrash about a fur coat. I don't know if that Midrash is even an ancient Midrash. But his teachings on Noah, his teachings on Lot, his teachings on Avraham, just excellent. So anything you can find on Aleph, Beta, and that will just be wonderful. Yep. All right. Well, that'll uh, do it for today. If you want to get a hold of Marty, you can find him on Twitter at Marty Solomon. I'm at EIBCB. And then go to BaymontDiscipleship.com. You can find uh, all the other links, all the other news, all the discussion groups, everything else we have going on. You'll find it there at the website. So thanks for joining us on the Baymont Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon. Man, I cannot believe, by the way, that I was able to pronounce inimitable the first time without thinking about it. <laughs> so I, great. I think about that word a lot for whatever reason. It, I see it somewhere or it just pops in my mind or whatever, and I think about how to say it, and I say it out loud, and I get it about 50% of the time. It is, <laughs> it is just the weirdest word, and it, it's not used often enough that you can just... Like it, it just doesn't quite feel natural, and it's like this weird tongue twister of a word. So yeah, anyway, it's it's funny that that word came up, and that I knew what you're talking about, and that I was able to say it. <laughs> uh, all right. <laughs>